Why, why can't I get opioids easily? I just want to do them recreationally. I'm not talking about being addicted or anything. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to have a good time on the weekends. Oh. I, I, like, easily. I don't want to have to go through some skeezy dealer to do it. Yeah, exactly. Or go to a doctor. Yeah, you gotta... Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> man, oh, man. No, All this... it does is make drugs harder for the people who can enjoy them responsibly. Okay. Yeah. Smiling too. Okay, okay. I'm gonna try to intro us to this movie a little bit, um, and then we can kind of break down scenes. If we sat and talked about everything, we'd be here, ev- you know, be here yeah, forever. And going. I don't, I don't no, want to be here forever. I just want to give everyone an introduction to French New Wave cinema. And okay. I want to give everybody a hearty welcome to the Machination Log for oh, September second, 2016. We've got Nicole and Ryan. We've got Movie Crew Prime in here. In the house. Feels good to be back. Um, you know, it's been a couple weeks. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not going to lie. I've been in kind of a slump the last month and a half, but I'm working on it. So no, let's chop that out. Nothing like a Movie Crew review to pick the yeah, spirits up. Yeah, pick us right? up. Okay. All right, back as you were, Nicole. Okay, Weekend, Godard. Weekend is pretty much the pinnacle of Godard's French New Wave uh, career, because French New Wave is cinema from the 50s and 60s uh, that covers kind of generally the following themes covers existentialism which i know we've we've covered previously in uh in the movies that we've selected covers the individual mm-hmm. the absurdity of the human existence which we've covered uh extensively in something such as catch 22 which isn't french new wave but it is from the same era the novel is mm-hmm. so a lot of these themes overlap uh it also it also involves a lot of, uh, from a more technical camera aspect, long tracking shots. And uh, we see the first, uh, the first examples of audience members, uh, or not audience members, I'm sorry, of actors and actresses in the movie addressing the audience directly. So mm-hmm. this is something that's also new to French New Wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, Godard is probably the most famous of the French New Wave directors. It's the only one I've ever heard of. Exactly. And and the culmination of his French New Wave era was Weekend. Mm-hmm. Weekend, 1967. We are in color. A lot of the French, the 50s French New Waves, a lot of them are in black and white. But I decided since we just wrapped up a black and white film that we would get a little color in our palette. Well, color because also this is, um, you know, the, by the by after World War II, obviously with Europe experiencing their their troubles, um, they're really they don't have like the kind of infrastructure the and really the the monetary Money. ability yeah. to you know make color films right so even in the 60s and 70s you know it's still the only method and means available to a lot of filmmakers in Europe at this time period as and well and with with the color and especially in this film and a lot of other Godard films um, we see kind of a a a, a pop art palette uh, a lot of primary colors are mm-hmm. used as accents this movie is. Um, you know, definitely included in that. And, uh, you know, that's just a little background on French New Wave. Um, so this movie in particular, it doesn't have as much of a storyline as it is a journey uh, that eventually leads into chaos. Um, but just as a brief, uh, a you know, kind of like a, a, a brief summation of what this film is about, in quotation marks, uh this movie, you know, if you listen to Godard, is an example of individu- of giving away individual agency for the good life. Basically, Godard is a leftist and 
hates, hates, you know, consumer culture, you know, people trying to live the good life, people stepping on the backs of the worker so that they can just consume indulgently. And at its heart, that's mostly kind of what this movie is about. Yeah, the, the classic idea of like bourgeois yeah, culture. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. classic attack of bourgeois culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very important in French New Wave cinema, and it's very important here. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was very important to that era. I yes. mean, we were right. This is almost the exact center of the communism versus capitalism argument mm-hmm. between World War II and the fall of the wall. So. Yes, and uh, and Godard is a leftist, no doubt. Mm-hmm. He is, you know... That's not hard to read. Yeah, it's not hard to read in the film. Um, even right after this, he he pretty much came out and was like a full-blown, you know, Leninist. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> very, very left. So this movie has two main characters, Roland and Corinne. They are married... And barely. Well, just just to establish our two characters, Contractually. We'll, 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 we'll jump in. We'll jump into the actual film here briefly or I mean, uh, momentarily. But just keep this in mind as we go through this film. Roland and Corinne do not give a fuck. They don't give a fuck about each other. They don't give a fuck about other people. They don't give a fuck about anything except what is going to move them forward and get them their Hermes. Uh, handbags mm-hmm. and a condo in Miami. They're like, out to get them there. They yeah. really don't give a fuck. So let's begin. All right. <laughs> uh, and one note from uh, the inestimable Roger Ebert, the top of his glowing review of this movie uh, from back in the years. Uh, year after year, John Luc Godard has been chipping away at the language of cinema. Now with Weekend, he has just about got it down to the bare bones. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I present Weekend. Oh, mm-hmm. also note, this is a Criterion film, much like our previous film M was. Mm-hmm. Um, so this and all, most Criterion films are available on Hulu to watch. Absolutely. Uh, commercial free. Cool. So. So how the hell do we want to actually attack this film? Because we could go through... I mean, it probably makes sense to at least try to remember what the fuck happens in what oh, order. I, d- I did kind of, I did detail, Whoa. I did uh. detail that. One of the things that's tough about this movie, because it doesn't have an explicit storyline, and it's just a series of, uh, you know, not desperate, not disparate events, but basically a, a series of deteriorating events, um, it makes it hard to, to kind of, follow in retrospect because you're not like okay i got from point a to point b no this is just a bunch of events that happen um so i i did actually detail like the key uh, events that happened during this journey well and i meant i meant in a more general sense that talking about them in sorry live demo folks we got uh, we have a water spill we had a spillage is, uh, on me but uh but no it's it, just because the scenes in this movie it's not even that they fit together or flow together per se. I mean, the transitions in this movie are insane, but um, the concepts, the high-minded concept, and we are talking about a French film from the '60s, so this gets to be, <laughs> yeah. So there is as much be ex- or as, as little to dig into as you would like. Yeah, in this, each this scene. movie can be exactly as pretentious as we want it to be at any given time. Um, there is there is kind of a shouting non-narrative flowing through this movie and that's part of the reason I brought up the Ebert quote that Godard almost feels like 
he was it was like beneath him to make a film about this topic in the way that he presents things. He has title cards all the time that occasionally are nonsensical. They say things like this film was found in a dump mm-hmm. or when weekend shows up the first time it's word week and the word end just like randomly scattered around the screen. And he has like flashbacks and jump cuts that are of no obvious relevance to any, like it feels very begrudgingly built mm-hmm. um, in the format that it was confined to. And he fights against it in any way he can. And you also, you also have to understand a lot uh you know, French New Wave, or even just European art house cinema, you have to remember that the they're not trying to play to an audience. Like they, they will, they will torture you as needed uh, in films. So, so like the audience is not their friend. They probably think poorly of you, and <laughs> movies are longer and more excruciating than they could be and that's most likely on purpose yeah it feels like it yes there are there are scenes where there are some scenes where it seems like it's making a point and then there are some scenes where it seems like it's almost caustically not making a point with Mm -hmm. how long it's going um i I guess we may as well just go through ryan were you gonna well i want to maybe also set this up which is that this you know i'm trying to imagine what like a person who you know watches movies today you know when they you know like i mean like a, you know what they normally encounter like randomly go to a movie in america today for someone who's like been raised and built upon the, that kind of cinema i mean what do they look at what is it like for them to watch like a film like weekend for the first time and um i, I said one maybe idea or perception about this which is that you know imagine like um you know someone raised on like pop music you know in like the 40s and 50s and then they hear like you know Miles Davis or like John Coltrane, like you know they hear like the, the like the classic bebop jazz artists. Um, that would sound like jarring, right? Like, and if you had only heard like formulaic, simplified pop music, and then heard jazz for the first time, like in a very, you know, and it's and it's kind of like you know pure form in the nineteen fifties. Um, it would, I mean, that would be something unique, right? You would definitely say that, like, what's going on here? Like, where's the chorus, you know, like, why isn't there any lyrics? Like, what's, you know, is this, is he just making this up as he goes along? Like, yeah, specifically you, the improvisational yeah. factor. Yeah. And so you, but it's important to remember that, like, from the, in the 1950s and 60s, you know, America, it's like rock and roll's the rebellious thing. Uh, in Europe, it is jazz that is the rebellious music, all right? Like, it's like, you know, the kind of like classic Howard Moon and the Mighty Boosh kind of thing where, you know, to intellectuals, it is jazz that kind of represents freedom in, in, in music is jazz that kind of freedom represents of expression. Yeah, free, this idea that, you know, they're kind of pushing the language uh, and boundaries of music to areas where it hasn't been before. And I think that's a kind of interesting way to think of, you know, French new wave cinema and Godard's it's kind of impresario is this idea of it being like cinematic jazz well, where it's not exactly, you know, what you expect to happen. And yet having something, you know, that is unexpected, right? To have something that is intentionally trying to jar you out of the conventions of what you had accepted to be the only way things could be done. Um, these guys, you know, to a certain extent are experimenting. These guys are going to, you know, display stories and tell and and show you uh, cinema that is not conventional in a very real sense. And that is, and that alone is, is jarring, right? That alone can be a kind of uncomfortable experience. And you also have to put yourself in the place of, you know, we're, we're talking 1967 media was limited. We have so much media available 
to us. But when this came out, alternative forms of media were very restrictive. I mean, you had jazz music and you had art house films. Mm -hmm. I mean, there wasn't anywhere else to get alternative media from, which is why this movie may seem a little ridiculous now. But I mean, this this was really important when it came out because you just didn't have these alternative viewpoints uh, presented to you because there just wasn't that many media outlets for them back then. Well, and moreover, uh, fitting hand in glove with those two concepts, this this film feels like it's trying to get out of the screen oh, all yeah. the time. Like it feels it feels like it is only there because this is the way that is presently available to convey this information. It feels like Godard. Wa- I mean, Godard would have a YouTube channel. Let's yeah. put it that way. Um, but, he would- <laughs> but back then, that wasn't an option. So you get films like Weekend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which I guess we may as well get into it. Start. Opening up on our capitalist antiheroes. Um, yeah. yeah, so we start out, we have a couple scenes in the city, which we will quickly uh, we will quickly leave. But, you know, we start out <laughs> yeah. in the city where we establish what the whole point of Roland and Corinne's weekend jaunt. They're going to drive out to see Corinne's parents. Corinne's dad is close to death. And they want to make sure that they get that money. Yeah, they don't get written out of the will. Yeah, yeah. not only... Do they want to make sure that they are not going to get written out of the will? They will kill the father if necessary well, they, to they make sure. They have been killing him. Well, like, okay, they yes, see him every they weekend have. and they're like, yeah, they why, have. Have we been sl- why have we been steadily poisoning him for five years every weekend? Like, this is the point. Yeah. No, and there's no there's no actual development of character in these two. They are, they are written as they callously are, as could be conveyed. Yeah, these are these are two dimensional fucking you know consumeristic bullshit people at their core. This does not let up at any time during the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are any any opportunity to show humanity they shunt pretty much immediately. Yes. Well, and we get a short intro to the world because it's like the first shot is of uh, Roland and his friend you know on a balcony in the sunshine in the city, uh, and then and they have a like, simple little interaction, and then all of a sudden we hear like um. Like a horn honking and tires screeching. Not for the first time. Yeah, for the first or first time. Yes, yes. So we are right. And, open. and Corinne looks over the balcony, and uh, what does she see? There's a road rage incident happening <laughs> in the parking lot of their uh, apartment, and you know it goes through. There's people hitting each other. There is, you know, and they're they're looking at this casually, just laughing, going, "Oh, I wish my father was the one in the car accident. Yeah. Fuck that guy." Basically, yeah. Um. You know, so we get right off the bat, we, we, we get our car crashes, we see that these people don't give a fuck, and uh, that they're basically vapid and useless human mm-hmm. beings. Cut yes. to the next scene, which is an homage mm-hmm. to Ingar Bergman's persona. Mm-hmm. We get a really long and uncomfortable psychoanalysis scene where Corinne basically goes into in-depth into a threesome that she had while she is... Wearing her brawn panties, sitting on a table while her psychiatrist friend just sits behind and asks innocuous questions. And she goes in. It, this is this scene is long. It is uncomfortable. It involves milk and a couple cracked eggs. Yeah, like and it has it's, it's breakfast. Virtually it's, <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie. Uh, but and you it's know, all backed by accordion music that is. So it's and it's not like accordion like lots of notes it's just like someone it sounds like breathing coming out of yeah. an instrument 
and it's menacing and the volume is fluctuating up and down randomly completely like there's no rhyme or reason to why the music comes and this scene this you know like we were talking about how you know the audience is 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 not always thought of positively this is this is definitely right off the bat a scene that just you as an audience member start becoming uncomfortable and going well why the fuck am i watching this Mm -hmm. Uh, but we we, i don't want to digress into that scene too long but it is important to note because these are the kinds of of you know film experimentations that are going on in this film so we have this really really lengthy therapist session well it is kind of cool that it does end with him asking you know was this a dream or not and she's she's I can't tell she can't tell and yeah. she also has no emotion about any of the events that she is going mm-hmm. on yeah. on and on and on about. well and that that's what makes the scene I mean what she describes would be absolutely suitable to any form of uh, pornography yeah. nowadays. There's, you could imagine this just being the blocking of a script of an actual porno. Uh, no, well, but the, the way she describes it is absolutely is verges on uninteresting. Yes. It yes. is. It is. It's like the textbook way to describe exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not humorous. It's not. Gamely, it, like it's it's nothing. She's very nonchalant about going through all of you know the the sexual escapade, you know, and and the therapist is literally a joke because I'm not sure what exactly he's trying to analyze here, except just get some juicy stories on a oh, client yeah, he, that he's most likely sleeping with. He well, almost certainly yeah. he he asks whether or not she thought of him. Yes, um, mm. I mean it, it, the the only thing the client offers her in recompense for. Uh, or as compensation for what he's compensating him for is a cigarette, and it's not the kind of cigarette she likes. Yeah. And then so she she's leaves. just like fuck that American yeah. cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we, uh, and then we find our way out to the car. So then we we have our two city dwellers are leaving the city to embark on their journey to go see the father and make sure that he died and that they're going to get his money. But but they get accosted before that happens. (laughs) Yes. So before they can take off on this journey, there's a slight fender bender as they're pulling the car out. And there is a great scene that entails with them basically blaming the person with the parked car that it's their fault. And the kid is running around and there's throwing things. It gets, it gets physical almost. (laughs) There's, uh, a, there's oh, a shotgun gets, blast yeah. all of a sudden. <laughs> I, I'd say it's physical. Yeah. There's there's some physicality going on. In particular, I like that scene in particular because of the kid. Yes. Just playing into the if playing directly into the the consumerism's corruption of everything. This is the most asshole kid. All he does from the beginning to the end, he's like dressed like an Indian, I think. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. dressed like an Indian. He's, he's running around this parking lot. And the first line he said, or something close to the first line he says, it's like, what kind of car is that? Yeah. I'll bet that's a piece of shit, whatever yeah. brand it is. Yeah. And all he, he just accosts these people. Like, he's the least charming individual. And the, they're annoyed at him because he's causing enough of a ruckus that the owner of the car, which is the kid's mother is going to come out and want to exchange particulars, which they have no fucking time for. The car should have been parked there, you know, as far as they're concerned, and it's just holding them up. Yeah. yeah. Well, and they, <sighs> and like, like good capitalists of the era, it's not, they don't even have the, like, moral standing of understanding of capital. It's not like they have this transactional ideal. They're not, they're not, um, they're not evangelist libertarians. They're just out for themselves. Yes. Like it's not it's they've violated like this contract of of property rights 
and that's of no concern to them whatsoever. So, like, they establish right off the bat that this is not an idealism. This is just who they have been grounded into Yeah, this is just vapid consumerism that Mm -hmm. these two represent. And the kid does as well. The kid kid actually, uh, he accepts a bribe to stop calling his mom um, after the fender bender. um, And the kid accepts money from Roland and then keeps keeps yelling yelling even louder afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So these people are thoroughly unlikable. Um, These scenes are, every scene so far has been very long. This one in particular, though, um, there are a couple of fight scenes in this movie that all take place essentially over one, I don't know if they were done in one take, but it would have been a pain in the ass for them to be done any other way because this car, um, Roland's car, Hits the other car. Granted, it doesn't do like significant damage. It just backs up into it from a parking spot. But by the end of the scene, there's paint on that yeah, car. They're, they're yeah, they're spraying paint at each other. And you know, there's, like I said, physical altercation. He gets up and starts like trying to uh, physically accost the child. Yeah, and this isn't necessarily the most impressive one. That comes later. But there are a lot of scenes of physical violence in this movie that must have been a pain in the ass to design. Yeah, and that's one of the things you notice while watching this film is that, yes, e- I mean, some of the shots do have like one or two cuts, but most of these scenes are very long and are taken in what appears to be maybe just one or two takes. And they're complicated. Yes. Like the next scene we're about to run into. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is the epitome of the the filming done in this film. So, okay. Minor fender bender. You know, they got to go. They spray the car and the kid with paint. Tell him to go fuck himself, basically. In, Dad comes in out more with a French shotgun. <laughs> yeah, and wings them with a cut with a double barrel. You know, and they're and, fucking off. And yeah. the, the scene is the scene's <laughs> title card is a scene of Parisian life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by the next scene, which I believe is uh, Saturday, ten o'clock yes. a.m. I, I actually, yeah, my tracking notes. I didn't. I didn't kick up till Saturday, 5 p.m. But yes, we're starting at Saturday, early in the day. On the weekend. On the weekend. <laughs> here, here goes our journey. Our journey begins with a traffic jam. A traffic jam that will now take nine minutes to clear. Mm-hmm. It, it is done in four shots, and it required every single, on a technical note, every single piece of tracking to put together... Uh, for that particular camera in all of France, they had to get every single piece of track so that they could film what has to be the longest, most drawn out navigation car- yeah, of a traffic navigation jam. of a of a of a traffic jam of all time. Yeah, this, I mean the, the this scene, thing is this scene is flooring when you're watching it. it. Is, it's amazing. It, it's at least half a mile long, mm-hmm. just of cars, not quite bumper to bumper. But close enough to be assholes to each other to not let Roland merge. It's, yeah, yeah, it's great. So, so of course, with all good traffic jams, the one side of the street is totally open because no one's going that direction. Mm-hmm. But the way everyone's trying to go is totally stopped. So, of course, they're driving in the opposite lane trying to surpass all this nonsense. There's a callousness in not only the drivers, but also in Roland and Corinne. You know, you, you see... Them trying to pull in and the other drivers stop and and pull up even though there's no space just so that they can't get in. It, well, well, to be fair, <laughs> we've all been that, in yes. that experience where we are waiting our turn in a proper way and some prick in the long lane, wrong lane comes in. 
And if you give them a foot of space, they all of a sudden assume, oh, this is for me now. I want. I need to get over after I've passed everyone who was rightfully waiting in oh, the right yeah. of way. This, this entire nine minutes, there is constant horns honking. Yes. There is no break from that for nine minutes. Yeah. There's constant horns honking. There's, um, I like there's, there's at one point, uh, you know, in our long traffic jam, because we're on one lane, there's a... It, of course, it is a woman driver who actually has her car turned around the Opposite other way. way. <laughs> People are yelling sexist things at her. It's really good. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, it, it's great. It's, 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 it's a masterful piece, and it's definitely probably the one of the most memorable things from this film. Oh, certainly. And it's, but it's got, like, like Ryan, you were saying, it's, it has the primal blueprint on it of being... That's my spot. Yes. That's my spot. Everybody wants theirs. Oh, and oh yeah. They will do anything to keep it. And we get to the front of this line mm-hmm. and there's been a horrible accident. Just dead bodies, cars destroyed, dead bodies. And Roland also and Also not for the last time. <laughs> no, no, no. And Roland and, and uh, Roland and Corinne or they just they just zoom right past it. They don't give one thought to the dead bodies laying in the road. They zoom past them because they're like, finally, I got out of this fucking traffic jam. Yeah. But but almost more critically, the front of this line is just a guy. St- he's in his car, just in neutral, looking at the scene yeah. with everybody behind him. So yeah. uh, like all traffic jams, this is all caused by just a rubbernecker yeah, exactly. who's just observing Ugh. the gruesome violence on the side of the road uh, and holding everybody else up. It's terrible. Yeah, And if we wanted to go, I don't know how many layers we want to <laughs> dig into the pretension, but if we want to, if we want to pull in the consumerist angle, it's that we're all fight. you know, the, the idea that we're all fighting over just an absolutely menial irrelevant thing at the end of the day well that that someone's always trying to get to gain a little bit extra time like is there is your life really that much better because you got like four spaces closer yeah yeah like really did you get there any faster (laughs) yes yes you had to break the social contract of road civility in order to get four spaces ahead of me like is your life that much better now yeah asshole (laughs) anyway (laughs) all right so So wait but but we see we see basically the the cold and uncaring uh way that Corinne and Roland respond to the violence around them and this this is a theme that continues extensively throughout this film this is not this is not the first set of dead bodies we're going to find laying around here no there's the budget for automotives in this movie must have been extravagant yes yeah. um between working i mean i assume most of the burned out husks were scrap vehicles that never worked. Uh, I would I would hope so, unless Godard's just swimming in that Marxist bus. <laughs> yeah. But um, but even so, I mean, there there are just a lot. There's a lot of empty metal mm-hmm. in this movie. Just on, and not even it's not even always the focal point. Like even during the traffic scene, I think there are at least two cars that are just upended on the side of the road that have mm-hmm. been abandoned. Um, that yeah. are worthy of no further ceremony. Um, and another one's about to come into play when uh, Corinne and uh, Roland stop, so, and yes. the class small, struggle yeah. begins. Yeah. Yes, so we 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 you know we got through our traffic jam, and we stop in a small provincial town, and there's another car accident. So we got Roland and and Corinne are, they're sitting in their car, you know, and they observe a car accident that is also brutal. The mm-hmm. driver dies. The car involved, which is a 
Triumph, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a Triumph v Tractor. Yeah, versus Tractor. Yes, yeah. die. You know, the, the car's destroyed. And the passenger is still alive. Now, the only thing Corinne and uh, Roland really comment on this is like, oh, that was a beautiful car that got destroyed. Yeah. But we go into now a long a long dialogue between the passenger of said car and the tractor driver. And right. this is where our, you know, really definitive class views start coming into play because the uh, the passenger of this car basically lays into this tractor driver that because he is old, fat, and he is not rich and not good looking, he has no right to be I to be a crashing into her car and basically no right to even exist. Like mm-hmm. he is he is stopping her ability to live the rich life. Mm-hmm. And that he has no right as a fat, ugly individual to be doing this. Yeah. And and moreover that her uh, she she holds up on a pedestal her apparent profession of being a screwing entrepreneur. Yes, yeah. um, she basically just screws young rich guys. Yeah, that that appears to be her her sole talent. But that makes her better than the tractor driver inherently. Yes. Well, but she feels that she's also defending her dead uh, sugar daddy, I guess too. You know, like it's like it's like her his honor that she feels compelled to like. But his his privilege, and I hesitate to say white privilege because we're dealing in Europe. It's it's more of a class privilege issue, Um, you know, because you either had like higher ups or you had the working class. There wasn't a whole lot in between. Oh, I would I would say it's around epiphenomenal. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of black people at the top of the class struggle. But they're not. That's that's not the point. At least not in this movie. No, not at this and not at this juncture of time. But you know, like looking at it today, you'd be like, okay, we've we've obviously got some some white privilege going on. And this this scene is great because she's they're yelling back and forth. She is covered in blood. We look back at the destroyed car with the uh, the the destroyed boyfriend who are like laying there bloody. We keep going back and forth, and we also the scene is long, like we were talking about. (laughs) And it also gives all these different views of the different people in the town who are mostly unaffected by this crash, but are onlookers and just sort of laughing. Yeah, so you in, find it amusing. <laughs> in between, in between, uh, you know, the the uh, this this uh, heated conversation between right. the tractor driver and the passenger, you know, we 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 get cut. We see different people in the town. They're kind of laughing at this. Um, you know, we establish. Our, our white privilege situation. But then our tractor driver and our our passenger, they do come together at the end of this scene, which is brilliant because Roland and Corinne drive past the accident. Who They've watched it. They know it happened. They lamented the fact that a beautiful car got destroyed. And both the tractor driver and the passenger ask Roland to be witnesses. They saw the accident. They can... Basically, you know, witness, they could be a witness for this accident. And Roland and Corinne are like, we don't have fucking time for this. Yeah. And just drive on. <laughs> I've got a stepfather to kill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, at which point the uh, at which point, yeah, our tractor high driver and low come together. Yeah. High and low, they come together over the callousness in which Corinne and Roland show towards their situation. And we end the scene with the girl and the tractor driver holding each other, cursing out Roland and Corinne. Mm -hmm. So we go full circle. Look, the class struggle 
it's a struggle. There's Coran and Roland are outside of this. They are the bourgeois. Mm-hmm. The screwing entrepreneur is clearly a cut above these people. Well, and I wanna... She is everyone is actually beneath her. Yes. Corinne and Roland are trying to exploit her. They're not at her level. Because she's not murdering people. No. She is actually, she is part of some form of aristocratic screwing upper class in, Fran- in France. She's just I guess used that's to having nice things. Yeah, no. Yeah. There's this. There's a way of things. But but uh, on, on this note, we end this scene, you know, right as, as Roland drives away with our... Uh, our, our tractor driver quotes Marx. Mm-hmm. He goes, we are all brothers. And Roland thinks that this is fucking preposterous. But the tractor driver's trying to, you know, like I said, we're going to have a lot of weird references throughout this film. And uh, you know, a lot of leftist references. But, you know, <laughs> so as the tractor driver is trying to bring this group of vapid people together in a common cause, saying we are all brothers in the Marxist sense, um... We get Roland and them saying, basically, we don't have time for this. And as they drive away, they basically go, that wasn't even a Marx quote anyways. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the fuck these people are talking about. (laughs) So we, in fact, see that we are not all, you know, Roland Roland and Corinne do not consider themselves all brothers under Mm -hmm. the Marxist idea. They also consider Jesus to be a communist. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. He says, he says, I think Jesus said that. It was another prominent communist. Fucking hippies. (laughs) <laughs> so at this point we're still moving we're still moving through this film at normal time, you know. Uh it's about five o'clock on Saturday. Our uh our our I don't know what should we call R and C, Roland and Corinne. Yeah. There are our couple. Yeah, our you know, our couple. They get hijacked again. This time by Joseph Balsamo, who claims he is the product of of God and Alexander Dumas, mm-hmm. and that this in turn makes him God as well. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the first points in which characters in the movie start referring to the audience and identifying the fact that they are in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Roland and Corinne get get hijacked by them uh, because they need a ride to a city in the other direction. Joseph Balsamo has a gun and basically forces his way into the car. And he starts going on into a, a dialogue, which a lot of these characters do. And like I said, we can't break down all the dialogues, but I did have a couple notes on this one. Mm-hmm. He preaches. Okay, so, so Joseph preaches that what we're watching is the end of the grammatical era and the rise of flamboyance, especially in cinema. And this is basically Godard talking to us, telling us that this is the end of the old way of cinema and that what he is bringing is a new flamboyance to cinema that has not been here before. He's going to be really disappointed about that. Yes. Well, <laughs> you know, he was trying. And, and you know, so the, it's, it's the first point in which we basically have the director addressing the audience and reflecting that we are watching a film and what is happening in this film. And then, um, and then to end, to end this, this hijack... Joseph Balsamo, who's also claimed that he is a god, asks Roland and Corinne if they could have anything they want. He will give it to them. Tell him what they want. And they list off this great list of they want like a condo in Miami. Um, What is it? She wants an Yves Saint Laurent uh, suit. They basically want a bunch of really expensive things. 
That's all they want. The only thing on that list that is cool is probably a weekend with James Bond. Yes, the, they, <laughs> they both actually agreed that they would do a weekend with James Bond. Yes. Which does not impress the incarnate of God and Dumas. No, no. And that, yeah, well, God and Dumas basically tells him, oh, my God, you people are creeps. You get nothing. At which point they kick him out of the car and start yelling at them that they're dirty Jews. Uh, Godard, uh, anti-Semite, I think Ryan established. Uh, uh, Charges levied against. Yeah, very good. Very good. (laughs) Again, that's that's kind of hard to pull because in... In the echelons where these kinds of things are going on, you either are Jewish or are an anti-Semite. So it's well. I mean, it's look in the long term. It's it's like once again, it's, it's charges made, never proven. I think would be yeah. the way to say it. He's um. I mean, we don't know if he is. Those are the best mock. Yeah, but he's mocking their anti-Semitism as well. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, Godard. I think inten- intentionally leaves it, um, leaves it unspoken or unclarified. Because it's one of those things where to see someone's reaction to to uh, to see someone's genuine reaction to an ambivalent event, you can really see more about how the in the person's reaction than if it had been like someone telling them how to interpret it. You know what I mean? So the way that someone kind of gives away what they react to, like kind of maybe implies a certain value system they bring to their interpretation, and that kind of reveals something more about the person interpreting rather than the person showing you the issue. Well, I guess so, there's, there's that's no, a good political evasion. Yeah. Well, yeah, but no. But <laughs> and there's no reason to, I guess, you know, in the context of the times, there's no reason to think that, you know, Roland and Corinne wouldn't have been anti-Semitic themselves. Like I said, what because as Europe, soon, I mean, yeah, as soon as, as soon as they chase these two out of their car, they're yelling at them, that they're dirty Jews and they need to get the hell out of here. Yeah. I mean, if there was anything that we would say in Roland Corinne's defense, it's that talking about, someone's race seems entirely beneath their motives. Well, but also that there's a lot of, like, implication around, like, you know, high finance and, and you know, and Jewish culture as well. Sure. So it has this kind of, like, acculturation of, you know, in, in a lot of people's minds that, like, capitalism kind of resides as this as this semi-Jewish type of, of ideal. Uh, even though, ironically, of course, that when you look at Israel as a state, <laughs> it is, in fact, socialist. And, in fact, like, the kibbutz culture there is, like, like almost entirely like like more radically socialist than a lot of like communist countries ever were. So um, I don't. It's just a little, you know, yeah. historical yeah, yeah, note. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's it has its point in place. And to bring up the anti-Semitism, I think is you know just once again it's it's charges le- levied but never proven. If I yes, would, uh, yes. give my authoritative but sounding. Anyways, so we, we so get, that scene happens. Yeah. So we yeah. get rid of our hijackers. You know. And and Corinne and Roland continue to run people off the road, drive erratically, basically drive like they're the only people on the road and the only people that have somewhere to go and they get in their own car wreck right this is a great seed because it's dramatic there's like four cars piled up in flames and we see there's actual music there's actual music (laughs) and we see kareen because kareen is the most ambivalent not giving any fucks kind of person you could possibly imagine but we see some emotion for the first and only time in this film Mm -hmm. she gives a textbook blood curdling scream yes mm-hmm. and and as a viewer you have no you're just like oh my god this must have been horrible but then we back out we see the accident and she is screaming that her hermes handbag was destroyed <laughs> in the accident and this is literally fucking devastating yes. to corinne this is just the worst thing that could ever happen to her ever mm-hmm. 
I mean, for what it's worth, I'm pretty sure it was just sitting on the road there. I don't think it was actually like <laughs> well, it might as well up. might yeah. as well have been fucking in flames <laughs> yeah. in the mud. Yeah, you can't no. wash those things. But the the downside to this accident is that now Roland and Corinne have to go this journey on foot mm-hmm. through yep. the provincial French countryside, and this is where this movie takes a turn Again. and starts becoming a little bit more bizarre because now instead of just running into other motorists they're kind of transported and they start running into literary and historical figures mm-hmm. as they proceed on this journey by foot we start with they run into a uh, a french revolution uh there's he's probably some specific person but my french revolutionary history is, is i couldn't tell from the, from the i couldn't tell from the quotes he was reading who he was either <laughs> yeah. but he's yeah. in full garb yeah. let's say he is in, go- in the middle of what would look like a battlefield yeah. yes. it, at yeah. another century yes so basically our our gullist weekend mm-hmm. takes a turn into the french revolution mm-hmm. yeah. um it also changes the way time is tracked in our uh in our journey, because until this, we were getting the little the little screens where we were getting updated. It's 4 p.m. on Saturday. It's 5 p.m. on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Time starts disintegrating at this point, and the messages that were getting flashed on the screen start getting more absurd, less clear, and start spanning eras yeah. as opposed to just <laughs> hours in time. Yeah. No, we go on a bit of a, uh, a Roland and Corinne's consumerist adventure Mm -hmm. yeah so you know we run into this french revolutionary who's monologuing as Mm -hmm. everybody in this movie does we run into emily bronte and tom thumb Mm -hmm. um (laughs) which roland and corinne basically have no fucking time for it's a cute little sec it's one of my favorite sections in it like the way that the characters are like you know bouncing off of each other and the absurdity that they're encountering and like don't you see that this is the case and it's kind of strange because while they're completely dismissive of other people, they're also intensely serious about their wants, needs, and desires. And like yeah. any sort of distraction, deviation of like thing, something like beauty. Or they're, or they're like, asking, they're yeah. asking Emily Bronte which direction to the town, and she's giving them these weird Lewis Carroll Wonderland types of quotes and metaphors, and they just have no fucking time. For yeah, this. the idea that life would be in the journey, not the destination, is totally. fucking stupid way of looking at the world. <laughs> like, yeah. give me a fucking break. Yeah, and to to such an extent that um, by the end of the Lewis Carroll scene, um, they actually. Immolate, yes. Emily Bronte, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. they like hold her down and light her <laughs> on fire. fire. Yes, that's how much they don't have time for this shit. Uh, oh, yeah, good stuff. And then, and then, so we on get, to the next scene, and uh, then we get to Sunday, yeah. whole new day to start out fresh. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know we're still doing this journey on foot. They run into a guy in a phone booth and try to steal his car unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, this scene is weird and annoying and has weird, annoying music because the guy in the phone booth is singing his phone call yes. the whole time <laughs> during the scene as Roland and Corinne just like run around and basically try to steal his car from him. Yeah, it is one of the most bizarre negotiations yeah. for a ride I've ever seen in my and life. It's, it, it's also... It's a, it's another one of the extremely impressively well choreographed altercations because this scene, I mean, I would have to, I would have to go back and look if the whole thing is one shot, but at least the fight scene is one shot. Yeah. When they are arguing over that car, they are passing over the car, they open it up, they get They're implements in out, out, they swing at each other. 
there is, I want to see what the, not the screenplay, but the blocking for this movie looked yeah. like because that scene was crazy. Like yeah. there's, they don't do scenes like that in movies. A because doing that with the actual actors is an insurance liability no one would tolerate. But it's also just, I. Kodar didn't give a fuck. He was into torturing these actors, oh. particularly the actress. I've heard she was a mainstream actress he did not want to work with. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, so, of both course, Roland Corinne were apparently, they were like, they were they were top of their game famous movie yeah, stars. And the or produ- not movie stars, TV stars. Yeah, and the producer kind of was like, you're going to use these people. So Godard felt it was necessary not only to torture his audience, but to also torture his actors while making this film. Mm-hmm. And, and just as David was expressing, the... Like, the tediousness it must have taken to shoot these long, moving, dynamic scenes in one shot had to be just grueling as a, as someone working on this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is I mean, is there a making of any of this kind of stuff? Because you have to I kind w- of just look through the special features on the DVD has uh, interviews with people that worked on the movie, and you can kind of piece some of that together. Yeah, Godard really gives... And when he, his... <laughs> A Godard interview is less about Godard and more about like cinema as like a construct of thought that exists Remember, in humanity. This like, is the this is the bringing of the flamboyance. Yes, to cinema. Like, <laughs> so you really get like, hey, what was it like working here? And you get some like expounding answer about his place in the history of art and how it like how it is light moving through miracles that makes cinema possible. No, I, you look, know, like, I don't doubt that he's an insufferable yeah, okay. oh, yeah. son of a bitch. Yeah, no. I just want to know, I just want to know how they set up this scene. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> because, you'll never find out from him. That's okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not specifically. Not he's not revealing his methods, you know? Yeah. No. It's, Although in the interview with the cameraman, he did seem relieved that Godard did employ two cameramen for this movie. Like it seemed like that was like a burden he could take off his chest. I would put that in my writer yeah. <laughs> if I was the cinematographer for this movie. Okay, so anyways, you know, they, they do not successfully steal this car after this this huge he, long he engagement. He fights them off. And they're still going at this journey on foot. Um, they do. They get picked up by a uh, a traveling pianist. Mm-hmm. I believe that's the next scene. They uh, they make a successful hitchhike onto a. Uh, yes, yes. They find another accident because <laughs> during this journey on foot, remember there are accidents and dead people everywhere the that we are totally of the ignoring. Evidence of carnage. Surrounds yes, them. there's carnage everywhere. Uh, Corinne steals a pair of pants. From a dead motorist. Mm-hmm. And for, for what it's worth, I don't know if these statistics apply in France specifically. They were a lot easier to look up in the United States. Um, this this exact point in time, somewhere between 65 and 69, was also, and this may have been playing into it, uh, the deadliest time in automotive history. Well, if people drove like they do in this movie, that's not surprising. It, it, it was simultaneously per capita and just generally population-wise. This, the, more people died during this time yes. than any other time. This is when cars got fastest and not safest yeah. Yeah. the most. Because you will notice a lot of these cars, they're, they're small little uh, sports cars with no top, which means you have literally no protection. Yeah, but they are a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah, they yes. are all steel death traps. Yes. Exactly. Um, but yes, yeah, so they do, they do hitchhike and they get taken to town to yet what is another probably one of the oddest and uh, 
another one of the longest scenes, which is a Mozart interlude. Mm -hmm. And I know that while we were watching this film, we didn't do it with a large group because this movie, though considered one of Godard's more accessible films, (laughs) is not the most accessible film for general audience. So we just the movie crew watched this. Yeah, I I opted not to invite other people to watch this. And, uh, And I think out of all of the scenes... This 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 long Mozart sequence got some of the uh, some of the most uh, you know audience reaction. I know mm-hmm. David, you specifically uh, seemed really just floored by by this this, this whole scene. This this scene more than any other demonstrates a contempt for the audience, mm-hmm. um, and not even a contempt for the audience, just the format in general. Mm-hmm. I, for the most part, this scene is a free mini concert in the middle of your movie. Like mm-hmm. it is five minutes of the camera panning around at downtrodden farmers and members of the proletariat mm-hmm. while a guy plays on a Beckstein piano. Mm-hmm. Like right in the middle of this farm, yes. like right in the middle of this barn area, and, basically. And just the the visual cue I mean you can you can make assumptions about French fashion maybe and implements and the fact that apparently there really are such things as red barrels. I don't know if they explode when you shoot them. But there's nothing of visual relevance in this scene. Nothing happens. No, it's just a guy playing a piano. And, and you then, don't even see the we, guy play the piano slow, most of the time. We slowly pan around the entire area, not one time. But two mm-hmm. times because everyone is sitting, you know, Roland and Corinne are are standing next to a pole. I don't know if it's like a bus stop or just a waiting spot. Totally disinterested in what's going on. There's like farmers just by themselves hanging out like one guy's by his tractor. One guy's by a pole. There's like one girl sitting next to the guy playing this huge piano. Well, we circled this entire thing two times because it takes so long to get around the first time that when we see Roland and Corinne again in frame, we're like, oh shit, they're still here. And we do the (laughs) entire loop again. The only interlude that we have is there's a short period where the dialogue kicks up and the piano player basically humbly says that he's a terrible piano player and Mm -hmm. that he can't do justice. If only you had heard Schnabel. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's... This scene is like really long and torturous, and <laughs> well, it's Mozart. It's not that bad. No, 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 I know, I know. no. See, but that's that's exactly why it's it, it's a it's a contempt of the format. Yeah, because the the piano playing is perfectly it, it's perfectly it's perfectly acceptable. pleasant piano playing. Yes, um, <laughs> to turn a phrase. Yeah. No, I you can sit back and enjoy the music, and that's literally all. You, that's all you can do because mm-hmm. nothing else is happening. Well, but it's it's kind of funny too because like you know once again the the people in who who populate the scene the ro- the rotations they're reacting in a way that like normal people would react if suddenly in your town one day there was a fucking concert pianist all of a sudden playing shit you know like oh fucking. Yeah, it's like no, if, yeah, if, and, you, if and, you lived in horse country and then all of a sudden someone wheeled out their yeah. grand piano and just started playing. On the back you. of a truck and yeah. started playing. And it's so normal and believable that it's absolutely uninsightful. Yes. There's no, there's nothing about it. It's just people standing around. It's not like anybody's like clapping along or like tapping their foot. There's no, no. nothing happened. It just attracts people. Mm-hmm. And then some of them have to go do something. So they leave yeah. and they just, it's just. It is a total non-event. It's brilliant. 
So brilliant. Oh, and I'd like to say, so this happens on Thursday, like I said. So time, <laughs> so time is stretching because we went from Sunday to Thursday, and then our next interlude will now be on Friday. So, mm-hmm. so like time for Roland and Corinne, what started as what was supposedly a weekend jaunt. Like I said, this these segments are are are, are longer in in the you know chronological time that is supposed to have passed mm-hmm. uh, while we were watching this movie. And then we get to Friday after a week of four Thursdays, which mm-hmm. is basically this this entire scene was supposed to take up about four Thursdays, essentially, okay. if we're supposed to believe what he's putting up on the screen. Right. There's no reason to believe that, but... No. And, and it's there's also... No reason, no reason to doubt it, either. Yeah, there's so. no reason to doubt it. There's no reason to pay attention to it. It's... Uh, it's mostly just there. I would add fun with those title cards. Yeah. No, he, and he was having fun with them, too. Um, mm, that much is clear. Yeah. Yes. So on Friday, we're still continuing this journey on foot. And, uh, you know, they're at the side of the road. And this is great because now, in order to get a ride, you know, they're trying to hitchhike. And the drivers of the cars that are passing them on the road are asking them existential questions. Yeah. And they are you know, in true fashion, they are getting every single fucking one wrong. Yes. And not getting a ride. Uh, one of the questions to Roland, you know, the guy pulls up in the car and goes, are you in a film or are you in reality? And mm-hmm. Roland answers that he is in a film. And the driver basically scoffs at him and, and drives, leaves, off. And drives yeah. off because he is disgusted by the fact that Roland can't identify the difference mm-hmm. and that he is not accepting the fact that he is, he is real. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a, a really nonchalant, uh, part of this scene where a bum walks by and rapes Corinne. Roland could not give a fuck. He is just sitting there. He like looks at the guy. He sees her go down in the ditch. You know, we're assuming that Corinne gets raped by him. He gets up, closes his jacket, walks off. Roland doesn't fucking move. Doesn't flinch. Doesn't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then we have a, a continuation of tracking shots as we watch, this time not even with people in them. We just get long tracking shots of the street where they're sitting at, and then it goes down the road, and then the tracking shot comes back to, so we can see that Corinne and, and mm-hmm. Roland have literally made no progress Absolutely. because they can't answer the right existential questions to get a ride. Yeah, and even the is, camera's not terribly Yeah, the, yeah, the camera's point. not even following them at this point. <laughs> <laughs> But but they do get picked up eventually mm-hmm. by a trash by some trash men. Yes. Um and I don't want to dwell on this scene too long, but they get pulled into town. They're riding on the trash the 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 you know the the trash truck. They are actually having to pick up some trash themselves. Themselves, which is just a disaster watching them trying to do physical labor doesn't go well. But we get into a long long, awkward, and uncomfortable diatribe about immigrants because our our trash pickup men are a black man and what is supposed to be an Arab, although it's played by a Hungarian actor that doesn't look Arab he at all. He doesn't look like he's from that region. No, he doesn't. Um, but there's a really awkward sequence in which the camera just sits right deadpan on the black man while the Arab basically goes into all of his struggles with, uh, you know, life and society. And then 
we move over and we look at the Arab while the black man goes into a yeah. long diatribe about, you know, the race, uprising class. of yeah. blacks in America. Yeah. Exactly. To overcome. And it's it's at this point more than most others that the rhetoric of the movie shifts into unabashedly preachy Marxist territory. Yes. Um, and the way that the scene is structured makes it look like these are the thought, you know, these are the thoughts of the working class. Like yep. these are, it's, you're staring into this person's face and this is not a thing they would ever actually say out loud. It's just the thing, it's the loop of obsessive notions in their head about the idea, like uh, the black guy, when um, when what you're staring at the black guy and the Arab guy is speaking for him, the black guy is talking about how Vietnam, uh, the blacks of America are absorbing the lessons of the Viet Cong in guerrilla warfare and learning the combat techniques of mm -hmm. Americans in order to up to rise up and gain, in their res own revolution, gain respect the only way that it has ever been demonstrated that we can do this mm -hmm. through violence like it's all of it's it's just it's a fantasy thread that they would never actually say in real life but, it's just the thing in their head but but uh, you know and also cuz the french went through their own revolution and we start you know we start seeing that in this movie where we start getting this message that basically you know the only way you could rise above the tear is to, you know, put more tear on your oppressors and that you have to reach a level of revolution to get your rights. And this is where this movie starts moving towards at a relatively quick pace yeah, it, uh, from it, here on. Yeah, it moves it moves into that from here yeah. on out. So, so Corinne and Roland do finally make it to their parents' house. And I'm going to wrap this up really quick because this whole sequence is very, very quick. You know, after all this long out trip here, you know, we we get to town, you know, we find out that the father has already died and that they're not in the will. There's some really shitty negotiation between yeah. Roland and this the mom. It's pretty half-hearted. It is a terrible capitalist. Yeah, and then they basically just kill the mom because fuck her, she's not giving us this money. Yeah. Um during this sequence we do have our first, and this is this is important because we are talking Euro art films. We start getting our first scenes of, uh, you know, animal torture. Mm -hmm. uh, the mom walks up into this scene with a freshly skinned rabbit mm -hmm. that is like still bleeding. You can still tell what it is. And while they are killing the mom, we don't see the murder, but we see the dead, freshly skinned rabbit with mo with blood just continuing to splatter gush, on it gush as over they this thing. beat the mom to death. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do when you uh, beat your mom to death? You've obviously got to get rid of the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is a great scene. So we cut, <laughs> we cut from this skinned rabbit mm -hmm. covered in blood to a wreck that is bigger than any of the wrecks that we have seen yes. yet. It looks like it involves two cars, an airplane, Someone parachuting, yeah. <laughs> and then Roland and Corinne lighting it on fire because they threw the mom's body in this wreck so that it looks like she died of natural causes. Yes. Yeah. Which in this world means a horrific car accident. Yes. Apparently, yes. <laughs> natural natural causes means in our weekend reality now. Yes. This is this is uh, this is the first point in which uh, our accidents involve. 
planes on top of automobiles. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm just be, I can just imagine like the, cor- the corner of this universe, <laughs> yeah. you know, like like a natural died in his sleep. Very suspicious. Yeah. yeah. Very. We gotta do an autopsy. Yeah. Died in a car wreck. All right, just add him to the pile, you know. Like we got a routine. You know, and then the, the movie digresses pretty quickly from here because after after we, you know, Roland and Corinne think they're set that they're rich, all they have to do is get back to town and basically spend this money. We just disposed of the body. We're just going to go back home. But of course, it's not that easy. The will of the people is about to be imposed. It is. So they run into some British tourists having lunch and get kidnapped (laughs) by some hippie revolutionaries. Spouting some uh, vaguely familiar rhetoric Mm -hmm. from earlier scenes, um, armed with such... uh, such token weapons as M60s, which yes. uh, would be familiar to anyone yes. from that uh, from that particular era of Vietnam, <laughs> and they uh, they are abducted. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, they make a couple of pleas. They uh, they don't go over all that well. There's Apparently, some... Roland's got fifty million in the bank now. Well, because yeah. they killed the mom yeah. and they get the full inheritance. Yeah. Yes, and he's willing to give them half, but they, they don't, don't care. They don't care cause... about money. This isn't about money. Yeah, this is this is about freedom, revolution. You know. This is... It, it, but that's that is probably the best part about the hippie commune, just from a philosophical state, is is how little they stand for. As yes. they're just they're just a growing organization of cannibals, basically. Yes, yes, um, literally. Which, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the, yeah. No, they, they they eat people, and they yes, um, yeah. <laughs> and they just they have like they they have a drum set and a stove. And guns, and yes. that's about all. And like they, live, they live in the woods, they well, and, kidnap British tourists. They also have fantastic outfits yes. as well. Like, this is like the kind of, like, chic mod, you oh, know, we're like, talking like, green pants. And bell-bottoms. Like, red jackets, you know, like, they've got headbands on. I oh, mean, they yeah. some great headbands. Yeah, absolutely great headbands. So anyways, th- you know, this this revolutionary sequence goes, I'm not going to detail this in, you know, I, I did want to pick all, up on a, This is all a blur, basically. Like, yeah, this, because this it, from here to most of the end. This movie starts to drag at this point, probably deliberately, but there are a few key moments I want to bring up. Uh, one of them is, you know, like I said, you can't have your European art house films without animal torture. We saw the dead, freshly skinned hair uh, earlier. Now we're just going to see a couple scenes where they they just they just bludgeon to death a live pig yes. on camera and a um a, a fowl. Goose. Yeah, yes, goose. yes, yeah. and a fowl. Decapitated ba- goose. Basically, in a not efficient manner, by the way. No, no, not. I mean, just in a full bludgeoning way. But no, we do see a live pig. Get bludgeoned to death just for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Um, that pig also doesn't show up until the end of the movie as part of a meal that we could have quite plausibly assumed they just had meat on hand for. Yeah. <laughs> this is this pig died for essentially no reason aside from I had Dylan uh, Dylan came over and viewed it uh, last yeah. night. Nice. Uh, and um, he he knew about it because I I spoiled that part. But when it transitioned to the goose. It's like, fucking stop. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> oh, and it shit. does, it feels, it feels exceptionally unnecessary. Oh, it's gratuitous. It's, <laughs> it's blatant gratuitous in the reign of terror sort of yep. gr- violence as gr- just gratuitous it, nature. It, it feels to some extent... Um, like the only reason the scene is here is because Godard couldn't get away with murdering an actual person yes. on yes. camera. Well, but, 
Okay, yeah, I got, I got a point. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay, but I'm, I'm just going to wrap up the film and then we can go into our closing thoughts here. And like I said, because this revolutionary period, it, it drags on. Um, but we do have a nice wrap up to the end of this film because, you know, Roland and Corinne are still kidnapped by these revolutionaries. And our, our end scene is Corinne, still ambivalent as fuck, eating a piece of meat. And they inform her that, you know, that's some leftover pieces of British tourists and possibly your husband. Mm -hmm. yeah. And she just continues to eat it, yep. not giving a fuck. And we're ended with a title credit that says the end of cinema. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah. Of cinema. Ryan. So, okay. Uh, so. Oh, I got to figure out where to begin. <laughs> So obviously, you know, if we want to kind of tie this into kind of like our literary theory, this is the picaresque, right? The idea of it being vignette to vignette to vignette, right? The scenes don't necessarily logically or cohesively tie together, right? We've got the MacGuffin of meeting up with the parents, if you will, like the, the reason yeah. they're going through this fucking hell. And, uh, but still it is small little allegorical tale followed by small little allegorical tale. Something that increase that starts... in chaoticness as the journey continues. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it was in the in the Ebert piece, or I, I, which I read also, but then also something else I might have read. Um, but I think it's just kind of relevant to talk about because we, I mean, for people that are our age and slightly older, and especially people younger who didn't grow up during the Cold War, that that there was this like inherent violent threat of thermonuclear war that was like just like present <laughs> like the idea that like next week you know political leaders in two countries could just launch thousands of nuclear weapons at each other just end and just yeah just end it. the world as we know it like that was a very real possibility and in fact like almost happened several times and so how do you make a film about that feeling yeah, right? Ebert, and, Ebert mentions yeah, okay, Ebert, that yeah. Yeah, it was, it was the, the topic of thermonuclear war at that scale is too heavy for the format. Yes. And so, what, I mean, how do you talk about, like, dread? Uh, and also, I think that the idea of violence is something that, you know, we are around. It is something that I think is a little bit sanitized in our world today, right? It, this isn't like the glad. I mean, even the gladiatorial matches had their, like, social conventions. Yeah. And today we have it in sport. Uh, where, you know, this this violence of the world is kind of contained in these areas. But, of course, it breaks it breaks through. Um, and, of course, I just, I love the idea that this is used with road rage and car culture. Like, those two things are kind of in, intentionally brought together. Because that is where you do tend to see, like, these ideas where people's emotions and feelings will run away with, from each other. Oh, yeah. When, you know, they're in something that makes them feel more powerful. And um, so, I think this movie has a lot of foresight in that. Um, Another couple things I really enjoy about this movie is um, I think also the very like neat idea of not being able to tell whether you are in reality or some sort of facsimile thereof. I mean, I think that if you'd have made this movie today and if someone was trying to hitchhike or something and you'd say, you know, are you on YouTube or, or is this reality? And maybe someone not maybe being aware of which one would be different. Like, why are you living for this? Are you yeah. living for reality or are you living for some sort of like way to preserve this and publish it and have other people see it for, you know, for an audience, right? Is this reality or are you on Pokemon Go? And you're like, well, shit, I can't tell the difference, you know, like, and I think that, you know, him seeing this in this, you know, I think maybe for seeing a little bit how media kind of affects 
how people interact in the real world is also an interesting measure into this film as well. Um, if I could finally wrap up on my political view, uh, the political ideas of this thing. Sure. Okay. Awesome. Uh, for one thing, it is rather controversial, but violence was a part of political life, especially back in the 1960s. Indeed. Uh, especially when you look at this, um, and as the film goes into the idea of deco decolonization, <laughs> where countries like the U.S., France, I mean, we've got to imagine that when this film's made, there are 450,000 American soldiers in Vietnam. And uh, in 1967, uh, I think close to 5,000 of them will die in a single year. So we got to understand that there's like, there is violence in the world. And... You know, if you tell someone that violence is, they'll say like, well, yes, of course there is. But like, like substantially, we are a more peaceful world. Like, yeah, just demonstrably com entirely more peaceful than we were 50, 40 years ago when this film is made. Oh, even our existential threat is the same way. You'd mentioned thermonuclear war mm -hmm. and so did Ebert and Godard presumably assumed it as well. I mean, we have. He fucking we, lived it. Lived yeah, the fear yeah, of it, yeah, man. We, like, we, we have a doomsday scenario now, but the way that it has been permuted is. We're talking one nuke in a major city mm -hmm. is generally the way it's portrayed. And there are specific ways to the the way that this threat is now portrayed that are strange because we're talking about with the uh, the threat that we talk about the president keeping Gitmo open for is yeah. that he's trying to keep someone who is not afraid of dying from perpetrating this one instance of infrastructural nightmare. Right. But it's an infrastructural nightmare. Yes. It's not actually the obliteration of the people. It's the obliteration of the system, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which would be catastrophic, but it's not literally the end of everything. Yes, exactly. The way that it was. And uh, that's that has uh, scaled mm -hmm. over time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the... Um, we care about, like, collateral damage now. Yes, exactly. Not weird. So... But it's, I mean, to, to it's it's tough because everyone, you know, I think people tend to, ex, you know, blow the extremes out, uh, blow to the extreme, the normal experiences, and I think don't understand their, like, historical context. I mean, you can even talk to, like, older people who have this view of, like, you know, crime is, it, it, we're living in a crime-ridden society. And it's well, like, Trump is trying to convince everybody that well, that's crime the thing, is worse, but, like, but it's not true. And I want to say to them, like, you were a fucking adult in the 70s and 80s. Like, yeah. give me a fucking break. Like, the murder rate no, has dropped. no, see no evil. Yeah, the murder rate has dropped fucking 75% since 1977. Like, give, you know, give me a fucking <laughs> break. Like, and they're like, you know, ah, oh, it's terrible. And Anyway. But so, that's, but that's yet again, that's because there's more media outlets exactly. that are feeding them. So they feel like there's more going on, even though back in the the 70s they just weren't getting any of that information there's, so it, th there's also a really there's there's a matter of sensitivity to it as well which is very important it's one of the it's one of the reasons why uh, there will never be a size at which the american military can operate that will not garner some degree of vilification because it scales with the actual not even the per capita but just our standards improve to meet and exceed whatever damage um we are doing abroad mm -hmm. because you take the expectations and you gradually align them with what's going on and suddenly anything becomes unacceptable. If you ever, the, the story to relate this back to, I guess, would be uh, when Russia, not terribly long ago, uh, it's what I said at the top, September 2016, uh, Putin just ordered a massive convoy of trucks from ISIL just mm -hmm. knocked out yeah. one time. And there was a lot of hoopla about that that... Putin can get things done. Well, of course Putin can get things done. Yeah. A lot of fucking non-combatants died in that, yeah. which can be glossed over because he's not us. Mm -hmm. 
And when we have that sensitivity in place, what that sensitivity means, that heartache means that we actually care about it. It means that we may actually do something about it. Right. Um, which is the thing to always keep in mind when things seem particularly um, egregious is that that means we're actually caring about it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, and it, I think also the, the kind of way that people demonize and therefore desensitize themselves to this kind of like ends justifies the means approach to the world you know, I mean, on the other end, yeah. Well, yeah, Roland and Kareen are very much ends justify oh, the yeah. means kind of people. You know, yeah. like we have this thing we're we're working towards. If we've got to fucking set Emily Bronte on fire in the middle of a forest to reach it, that's what we're going to well, fucking do. Well, even the movie, and, in a bigger respect, uh, reflects that too, because it kind of reflects, like I said, the, the mentality of the only way to fight this is with like more blood mm -hmm. and violence. So, like, you can't be squeamish about the collateral damage because that's what you have to do to get your political ideology across. And in, and once again, I mean, if we're going to like put on our Marxist hat here, you know, they would kind of tell us that you know capitalism in its kind of modern form. The reason people feel this way is because it is a system that relies on the course of use of violence to perpetuate itself and to grow. Like, and you might, and of course, you, every, you know, everyone in the history of the world that's ever had to use violence always morally paints themselves as the victim, right? We don't have to do this. ISIS is making us do this. But the problem is, is that if you're always reactive to violence, it means that your system is in, a, in some way creating, creating incentives or a condition where people feel they need to use violence in order to affect some sort of change with it. And is that not fucked up? Well, I mean, I mean that's a larger point for something that I might have my own podcast about one day. But the thing is, is that like... <laughs> well, but Godard addresses that. That's the yes, point okay, of the yes. hippie commune. Yes, he's, yeah. he's, not, he's not just saying... Cons I mean, he's saying consumerism is bad. Let's... That's... Yes. There's no reason to argue that. But, Ryan, you made, a, you made this point when I asked about halfway through this movie when we watched it the first time. I asked what Godard's actual political leanings were. Mm -hmm. Because in the middle of the movie, it was still ambiguous. Yes. But you'd mentioned that the left tends to save its harshest critiques for its own. Yes. And the hippie commune at the end of this movie is a perfect example of this mm -hmm. because they don't even look like they're attempting to build a better society. No. Mm -hmm. They're just acting on the words. It's just guerrilla warfare yeah, okay, okay, at that okay, okay, point. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so we get the... Uh, the you talked about the garbage men scene, right? Yeah. Where we have the, the black African and the Arab African... Um, now the the cool thing about that scene is is that a the reality right they are the garbage men the lowest rung but yet the kind of Tyler Durden Fight Club necessary for society kind of roles right yeah. now the interesting thing is is that you get the the the, the two speeches between mm -hmm. the two characters are perhaps the most responsible message pervade in the movie right very theoretical notion of decolonialization revolutionary struggle and a kind of responsible theoretical you might have read these you know you could have. Theoretic, I mean, I think Godard could have like highlighted these in a fucking book about these things. I mean, yeah. I get a little, I get a lot of Franz Fanon out of it when I was listening to it. Um, but I think the interesting thing is, is that they, why do they speak for each other, right? Why are we visually shown someone eating and then someone else speaking off of it? Well, it's odd in a way that they, because they are, they're talking, the shared experience they need to, sh to feed their own justification, Right. If the black African is speaking, he's going to justify the Arab struggle. Mm -hmm. If the Arab is speaking, he needs to justify it in terms of the injustice per perpetrated upon others as well. And the interesting thing is, is that he does, I think, I think the end of this movie and the hippie commune, the actual people perpetuating violence are the ones that Godard kind of saves his contempt for because these aren't people... You know, who are living the, the, who came from or even lived it. No, they are in a sense, for one thing, um... I mean, uh, 
they, they lack substance. I mean, the fact that they're like fashionistas in the jungle, yeah. you know, like that this is kind of like playing army. But then also, they're cannibals, right? The only way that they can sustain themselves is on the kind of violence that they use, that they per perpetuate. Uh, that's what's so sustaining upon them. I mean, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be existing unless they were taking from others, and even in an unfair sense, in order to you know yeah. help everyone realize no, the yeah, revolution. Yeah, with they're, not, air they're not they're not rebuilding anything exactly, and so they are facile. They are fucking you know uh, they they are they they do lack substance, and they are superficial in the way that they conduct, and I think the means that they use to to perpetuate this. I mean, this is pretty scathing film. I mean, if we kind of like <laughs> want to come away with this, like what's Godard saying here? I'd be a hard time, you know, not just giving you the middle finger and saying I think that's what we got from this yeah. film. Um, <laughs> but it's but in, it's in the I think what makes this so interesting, if I can finally summarize this bitch up, is that <laughs> it is in the way that he does it. Right, I think that this film. We talk about the way that uh, at the beginning I wanted to frame this in the way that like jazz as a revolutionary art style broke down and you know tore down a lot of the the musical conventions leading up to it, and in its place, you know, created something that can seem very awkward to anyone raised on those conventions. But in the end, like when if you you know listen to jazz and give it its fair share, I think you can find a lot of beauty and uniqueness in the way that it portrays it. And French New Wave cinema is where we first kind of get this real, you know, almost artistic revolution in film. And a lot of like, if we look at, I don't, I don't think we get to Spring Breakers, right? One of the first films yeah. we reviewed. <laughs> I don't think we get to Spring Breakers unless we have Godard breaking those rules in the way that he did uh, initially. And I just found it once again. It's a great film. Um, if you want to look at other ones, uh, Mieville, uh, no, um, not Mieville, um, uh, Melville, uh, Truffaut, uh, if you, Varda. Varda. If you look up these uh, these old, these French filmmakers from this time period, um, you know you can probably see some of where the more artistic side of the of filmmaking comes from today is entirely worth your time. And this is a fucking romp of a movie uh, and a good. I think if get a couple friends together maybe have a few drinks before you start it up this is this is this is a fun one now if this movie sounds a little much like if if this is like okay this movie's a little much this okay this movie is uh, i guess a little much but i i did want to make us a, a caveat moving forward on french films just because i probably won't pick any of these so if this movie you're like this sounds great and all but there's not enough uh father daughter uh, <laughs> graphic sex scenes try later french new wave cinema anything from uh fast forward which is 80s godard mm -hmm. moving forward into someone like Catherine burlot because mm -hmm. if you find this movie to be a little much it only gets worse moving forward it gets less political and more sexually violent mm -hmm. and the most graphic stuff i've ever seen on film mm -hmm. Um, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, uh, you know, so so if this if this sounds a little too political leftist for you, try some later French yeah. new wave cinema. It's uh, it will be shocking. Yeah, rather than the political hell, it's more yeah. like that interpersonal. It's an hell. interpersonal like yeah. psychosexual hell. Yeah. Um, uh, if there's a hell this movie doesn't have, it's interpersonal. <laughs> and that's uh, you know, and that's what this one is 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 you know missing. But. Um, you know, I th feel like French cinema has always pushed the bar in a gratuitous sex and violence way. This movie, uh, you know, this movie exemplifies it, you know, from the 60s period. But uh, French cinema has always pushed the envelope in a very uncomfortable 
way. Um, but on the flip side of that, this movie is... It gets a little drawn out, but it is fun to watch. Like, you know, it it is a good intro to French New Wave cinema. Like, if you're not going to tackle any of it, this is probably the one that you should tackle because you do get a good feel for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really, I actually did enjoy watching this again. No, it is, I like this it movie. Is definitely, I like this it movie. is definitely a, a romp. And like I said, there is that aspect of audience torture in it, but it's not as bad as it could be. <laughs> <laughs> just, just from an audience perspective. Ryan, your parallel was Spring Breakers, and I mentioned that mine a while ago was YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone who's familiar with YouTube in its modern iterations, when people, not necessarily on a budget, but get people together and dress up and do a YouTube video, the chaos in those YouTube videos is fully presaged by movies like this. Mm-hmm. Um, the random ass title cards, the flamboyant dress, the unnecessary carnage, um, the anti-Semitism. It is all, <laughs> it's all there on YouTube on display. Um, just with substantially better uh, racial and gender sensitivities nowadays. Yeah, Specifically absolutely. in the sense of them being flaunted in a much more simultaneously nuanced but also insane way. Yes. Um, but it's all it's all there. The aesthetic is absolutely present. Uh, YouTube, uh, even Family Guy sort of dives into the... Uh, it's. Uh, uh, you can call it filler because that really is in reality what it is. But pushing a scene longer than it needs to go, uh-huh. just sitting, stewing on it, it just the scene goes eight minutes instead of the thirty seconds it deserves. Mm-hmm. That is, that's where this came from, right? And it's good to know that we didn't invent, yeah, <laughs> boring. No, no, we we did not do that. European art house, uh, European art house invented that, and um. Like I said, I felt I felt like this is good. I don't know if I'm going to tackle a whole lot of other French films. Like I said, partly for the reason that they're uncomfortable to watch, not only by yourself but also <laughs> with other people, especially. Um, you know, but it's but we got to understand where our media came from, and uh, Godard is definitely responsible for a lot of of avant media moving forward. Like he. He gave us the ability to break through and make shit more flamboyant. Well, like, but like all good revolutionaries, I mean, let, let me not in a political sense, but in like in an artistic sense, right? You have the conventions of how something is, of what it's supposed to be and what's accepted. And sometimes you have people that, you know, maybe over the span of a career, you know, slowly manipulate and ask questions and, and alter those expectations and those conventions to where at the end you can have something very different from the end of their career than when they began. And then you have some people who just kind of like just jump in by, with both feet and and see where we end up here. You know, like you can kind of point to like Stravinsky who is able to do something like that, but also in a fucking to, to have a kind of radical deviation of what like, you know, ballet can be and what music is meant to be choreographed to, and then have and actually be talented enough to fucking pull something off. That is an achievement. And once again, I think, you know, it's not to say that he, he, invented it out of nowhere but that you know when, in a time when people are asking questions about why is that why are things the way they are and why do we do things th- this way um you know i think that that's a useful way to look at the world i mean in anything we in any endeavor we tend to want to uh to to put to ourselves you know there's what you you know there's the way things should be done 
Uh, but there's also some value in questioning why these things are the case and what is to be gained by breaking those rules or what is the effect that it has. And Godard, I think, was one of those people who kind of jumped like with two feet into it and said, you know, we're going to kind of, a, you know, take these roles of cinema and we're going to intentionally break them. And there's just one thing that you do kind of see about Godard, because we haven't really mentioned this, but like there was a lot of allusion to, you know, th there's a lot of like blatant allusion to history within this. Yeah, um, there's, there's in references. His, in his earlier movies, there is like a clear kind of fascination with like classic cinema. Um, we talk about like uh, Breathless. Yeah. The main character basically looks like a he models himself on Humphrey Bogart. And like, you know, like is constantly like striking these oh, no, poses these things, and walking that way. These, mo these <laughs> movies, very funny. Godard movies are so full of references that you, it's it's hard to pick them up. But he expects his audience to be educated to them to a certain extent. Like the more you dig in, the more that this this movie is just piled with references, not only like literary cinema, like there's there's a lot to dig in into if you want and some of them are dead ends like it's not all worth digging into but there is a lot well, to dig into but it, i mean it's very frustrating when you watch movies with people and when a, when a movie ends with a question right people are like well th what's the you know like movies are supposed to give answers and i don't think that that's always the case i mean sometimes you know like godard i think is 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 where cinema is he wants you to ask why something happened right he wants you to kind of ask questions while watching a film, also, instead of expecting the, everyone also, to give you answers, he also wants you to see the layers. Like because you're relating to these people, it's they're not only peop, actors, characters in a film. Like these are also real people playing these mm -hmm. characters, and you know, there's a lot of like delineation between what makes the difference between like a novel and a movie, and like even the characters in this movie are asked these different questions throughout. So. There's a layering of reality, not only like within the film, but also like how you're perceiving this as as a piece of media. And he plays with that a lot. Like I said, this is this is, you know, some of the earlier instances of a director using the characters in the movie to ask your audience questions directly mm -hmm. like that. Just you didn't play with the narrative like that before this right. like that. You didn't you didn't have your characters step out of who they were playing in the movie to ask the audience direct questions or to even ask questions of themselves as to what they were doing mm -hmm. like that just didn't exist. You, you didn't you didn't ask people those questions before mm -hmm. this. David. What? <laughs> I got a long vacant stare. What? Yeah, no. No, well it's just it's just I think that this is a cool place in in a, in a time in cinema where this is kind of happening, right? And it doesn't mean that it like ended up this way. And it turns out that this movie was not the end of cinema. No, it um, wasn't. And actually Godard my favorite Godard film was directed about 4 or 5 years later after this film. So Tovo Bien was oh, like yeah, 73. Yeah. Uh, it's also very leftist, but it does have uh you can see heavy, heavy Wes Anderson mm -hmm. influence in that. Like, when you watch that, you're like, this movie was directly influenced Wes Anderson, no doubt. Um, so he continued to make good films after this French New Wave era, yeah. era this, too. This could be a jump, jump the shark moment. Thankfully, it wasn't, though. This was kind of, this was kind of like the pinnacle of the, the French New Wave era, but he did continue to make good films. And he, uh, he also, like I said, continued to push the envelope 
in terms of like gratuitous sex and awkwardness later on, which all French cinema continued to do throughout current day. Right. Very good. So uh, weekends down the drain. Yeah, that was right. this Something was a like this that. was a big one. So guys, um, uh, David. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we got another movie coming up, huh? Oh. Yeah, we do. What are we doing, oh, man? How are you? How are you going to bridge this one? Yeah, man. What? Um. Well, it's going to be set in Europe. I think is about the extent oh, of the right. connection. Right. I don't actually know who filmed it. Um. We haven't done a documentary yet. Oh. I'm going to pick a recentish one. Mm-hmm. But it's one that I think quintessentially plays to what makes a documentary relevant because. Unlike most news and other reporting, which is on things you care about, documentaries, the magic of a documentary is when it makes you care or understand something about something you see every day that doesn't bother you, that you just gloss over and just brings it into a new light. So Mm -hmm. our movie is going to be Helvetica. Really? I love Helvetica. Oh, okay. That's a font. Everything looks better in Helvetica. Okay, okay. Helvetica. You'll know soon enough. Okay, okay and cool. actually that, tie, <laughs> that ties in exceptionally well because this is uh, this is the mid-century modern era. Helvetica was a font that was developed during this era. Oh. Um, so it does actually tie in stylistically very well to this movie. Well, I'll I, take it. I'm looking forward to that. All right. <laughs> and with that, Nicole Ryan. Yes. Thanks for being part of the Machination Log. Woohoo! Good morning, everyone. So look, about this food thing, I had a bacon cheeseburger on the way over here. Yeah. yeah. I'm doing all right. Was it doing nice. fun? Yeah, I'm doing yeah. good. I roasted that duck that you saw that I picked up. Yeah. Nice. So I finally found a bird that I will eat. I will. I was fucking grossed out the whole time cooking it. I had to take like giblets and oh, yeah. shit out. Yeah. And <laughs> there was like a whole animal. Yes. I had to like score the skin. But oh. God damn, that thing was good. Yeah, duck's tasty shit, man. <laughs> it's clearly the superior bird. I think it's a chicken lobby fucking goddess oh, this bullshit on. Fuck that duck. Yeah, man. That duck's like a bird worth eating. Gotta hit duck fillet. No, for I'm having duck carnitas tonight. Ooh, dang. That sounds is it duck steak? No, I'm gonna shred all the, the duck up and then I'm gonna make some little paleo uh tortillas and then I have a daikon radish and red cabbage slaw to oh, eat yes. with it because I can't eat dairy anymore, I think. <laughs> Oh, this is gonna be. Hard. Oh, look! There's there are all sorts of things that could be causing this. the the number The number of branching pathways in which your body might be Dude, telling the, you. Okay, listen. The whole I have been going through in like health podcasts. I am totally aware that this. I almost thought it was my thyroid because I've listened to so many thyroid <laughs> fucking podcasts. But then I was like, no, I think this is sinus related because that's the one symptom I have constantly. You've had a long time. Is too. a stuffy nose and brain fog, which can be from like head stuffiness. Mm-hmm. So I was like, no, I don't have a thyroid problem. I think this is fucking sinus related and going to a medical doctor won't help because I went to a medical doctor for sinuses my whole life. And I've had no improvement whatsoever. All right, well, let me... All they do is suggest cutting things open, which is really traumatizing. Let me toss this one your way. Not eating at all. Bam. Okay, here's the thing. I have to get back to paleo so that I'm fat burning so that I can now 
not eat because that was one of my favorite symptoms of better living through steak was the not needing to eat at all thing. Yeah. And now that I converted back to sugar burning, I think, after like the last two shitty months, I can't do that anymore. And it's disappointing. Now I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm getting hungry. This is irritating. <laughs> so I'm I'm trying to get back to the point where I don't eat at all. It's it's so nice. No, you just. No, I loved you, it. You it just, was great. You just bracketed it. It's from five p. Like Ryan's bragging about bacon <laughs> cheeseburgers. I'll have a bacon cheeseburger, but I get to actually like enjoy it now in mm-hmm. a way that it used like, food becomes an obligation in a really fucking depressing way yeah. if yeah. you eat it all the time. <laughs> yeah. But no, all, you got, all you got to do, you just you just stifle. Like, you only, I only get hunger pangs. I only actually get them, like, once or twice a day. And they go away after, like, yeah. five, ten just minutes. Just drink a glass of water. Next yeah. time you're hungry, just drink a glass of water. No, You'll I be have, fine. Like I said, I have, I'm going back on the better living through steak diet, less dairy. And I want to get back to the point where I just don't have to eat at all because it's fucking so convenient. No, I was looking at, <laughs> I was looking at my diet. and um, Talk about efficiency. <laughs> I, pro- I do, like, a 700 to 900 100 calorie meal, like, about once a day. Yeah. And then the other meals are about three to four hundred if i have a soda with them they might be higher yeah but like i have like one big ass honking meal a day and then i just like you know yeah i might just have one meal after that or something or you might have a cookie at night or a couple a couple cookies at night or something but like i only have like one major meal the rest are just like you know like like actual snacks you know like you know, like I'll have a handful of nuts. That's like 100, 100 to 150 calories. Well, and that's like, an, I I'll have like a glass of, of, uh, of milk with it. That's like yeah. another 80, 90, you know, so yeah. it's just something simple to like, but. I still barely get enough calories to survive. I've been tracking. So I, I can't really cut food. Well, that's the problem. Out. You went to milk to go to like, cause it's nice and dense. That, and has well, that's that calorie what, yeah, issue, I was but... like substituting all my lack of calories. And you aren't she... any, you aren't any bigger. No, like, what no, the fuck? I was losing weight. <laughs> I was losing weight. I was. I had gotten like my five pounds of gains, like from all that yeah. jujitsu. Fucking one month out of jujitsu, us shit all went away. I'm back to like 108 pounds. <laughs> so you yeah. got to find calorie dense food. Yeah. Uh, Just eat rice. It's fucking fine. shit, man. Why are you grains? It's not. I'm not. I'm not grains into- make civilization possible. I. I mean. So yes. They also yeah. make rheumatoid arthritis are possible, I think. Okay, well, I'll take the opera and rheumatoid arthritis <laughs> over anything else you fucking Getting put Getting rid next of the to grains me. hasn't been hard. I mean, I haven't, I've eaten like, you know, bread four times since April. It's been like a total non issue. Oh, cool. I actually just eat potatoes. There you go. I eat sweet potatoes every day. Yeah, potatoes, really? yeah. potatoes is the way yeah. to go. And it's, I mean, I, I'm a little skeptical of the ketosis thing. I've, I've heard enough contraindicating literature to suggest that it's probably not good long term. Well, to be yeah, doing you're that. not supposed to be in there all the time. And I even I think my my carbohydrate requirement is a little bit higher than ten percent. I've been racking in about twenty percent of my calories from carbs, and it seems to be okay. Yeah. No, seventy percent fat diet on the tea. I have no problem getting fat in my diet. Lord, look, I this is this is way too complicated food stuff. No, 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 I, no, I'm no, in no. a hole right now. That's the magic of the way that I'm tr- I'm trying <laughs> to build a food regimen that is simpler than the old one I used to have. Well, I'm on it. I'm on. I get about I, I get about 1,800 calories a day. Like, does anyone else need any more calories? I I literally lose weight like it's going out of style if I get less than 2,200 calories a day. Jesus Losing weight Christ. is the easiest thing on the face of the earth. Yeah, no, if, if I'm exercising at all, which part of the experiment with the fasting right now is that I'm not running, 
Um, oh, okay. on, on days where I'm running, I, I will lose weight if I don't eat 3,000 calories. Yeah. Oh, Easily. Okay. Okay. Easily. Yeah, because yeah. I've had coffee at a um, I had a like a half a banana, and then I had a. You only eat half of a banana? Yeah, I don't need a whole banana. <laughs> I can't do that because I hate bananas. I do too. Fuck, Instant dude. headache for oh, me. Oh, fucking I can't bananas eat those. are the worst. I can't so I eat them eat half at a time. Shit. I do it for the potat. I have to get the potassium. Um, and then, but what also is really good is that dates. I like dates, and dates are really high in potassium. Where do you well. get dates? Um, uh, Costco. Publix. Yeah, Publix, dude. Costco. Oh, they do actually yeah. have them? Yeah, Publix. go to the uh, dried, fruit, uh, dried fruit section. Yeah, no, actually, I just found yeah, the that. because they, they have dates. Yeah, they have, uh, they have all sorts of random dried peppers and stuff there now. They've got, Publix has dramatically increased its stock of actual food recently. Oh, you don't have a blender, do you? I don't? Like, yeah, because, like, well, the thing about dates is that they've got, like, a creepy skin, and they look like roaches. So like like there's like but a lot of blocking. But they're super sweet and delicious. Yeah they're, yeah, they're super sweet and delicious. But what? Oh my parent, my because my mom doesn't like them. But um, they have this like oat juice thing they drink. Yeah. So they get their fiber and stuff. And what they do is is they um they soak the dates in water and then blend them with the uh, with the with the with the soaked oatmeal and then strain that. And so the fucking that's how I make my uh, yeah, almond milk too. I soak the dates with the almonds and then I blend it up and so strain that, it. So that's another way that you can get it as well. Because like yeah. I said, they're not for everybody. Like some people are like they like like eating roaches is the most common thing I've seen to them. <laughs> but they're fucking tasty. I like them. And I don't honey. And- I, I don't know that that would violate it for me. But the blender, I mean, the blender violates my principle of simplicity. Exactly, yeah. Like I I want to be done. I want eating to take less than an hour of my time every day. And it turns out it takes a shitload more of. Your yes. time than Especially that. Especially if you want to eat I healthy. Spend, like, yeah, if, no, I spend, like, I spend so much time making food. No, I know. I mean, yeah. But once again, I had a bacon cheeseburger. I, I spent 10 minutes getting it. <laughs> <laughs> <You're like, laughs> no. But I can't do that and, every, every and day. And you ate more calories than would have been physical. Like, it now takes yeah. me longer to eat than to prepare my food because I have, I've got my electric kettle. I have a, I have one big pan. Mm-hmm. I have one big pot. I have a microwave. Whatever I can put together in 20 minutes yeah. between those things is what I eat. And I get about 1,500 calories of fruits and vegetables. Yeah, awesome. Um, do you do nuts at all? Do you Because, yeah. like, walnut, oh, yeah, walnuts, and, walnuts and dates will fucking keep you alive yeah. for, like, ever. Oh, like, no, yeah. I've, I've, uh, Costco, Costco sells. I mean, they used to have food containers, at least online. But, I mean, they sell mixed nuts. Like, if you need to live for oh, yeah. a couple months... You just bring three of those along with yeah. you. They got giant yeah. tubs. No, of those I've things. got I've got tons of. But but walnuts in particular are really, like really yeah. really good. A lot for of you. omegas. Yeah, and they're like good for your brain. Yeah, really good for. And you. Publix now has a dispenser for them. Yes, they have the yes. ones like at Sprouts, which yes. is super cool. Have you guys been to that Lucky's yet? No, because Up everyone a, just tells me you can drink while you're shopping, and that sounds unappealing. So I've never gone there. Oh, it's not too bad. I mean, once again, you talk about like what like. Because well, I'm, I'm doing this thing about pr- protectionism, because like everyone's like Trump's going to start trade wars and, prote- and tariffs and stuff. Like people are like, yeah, fucking jobs, you know. And you're like, <laughs> so I'm gonna like I want to like break it down in my podcast, like why we don't do protectionism anymore to any like meaningful degree. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be like a place like Lucky's where they get basically like like um, Aldi, yeah, like, would not exist yeah. if Donald Trump becomes president and does what he wants to do. Because like they are so reliant on fucking people bringing stuff in. 
to the country. Yeah. You know, so like all those foreign brands, and that's what Lucky's is. They're their um their own foreign brands that they bring in. Oh, okay, and, um, okay. So they're just like Aldi, basically. Uh, yeah, but they've got a good um, but like with dispensary a hipster section. vibe. What's oh, up? Cool. But with like a hipster vibe. Yeah, and they got like the place. They got like a whole aisle where you can like mix and match your beers and. You well, know, that's and okay. Like See, that. that's what I mean. Everyone comes back to beer drinking when they reference Lucky's, and I'm like, I don't buy beer, so I don't need to shop at this store. Yeah, it's not too bad though. They got decent. They got, a, they, got they have more variety than uh, than Aldi as well, and okay. they got more staples and stuff okay. that you could have there. Double down. I got to fucking double down. All right. All right. That's my favorite sandwich from uh, KFC, though, double down. Yeah, <laughs> piece of fried chicken with the cheese and bacon. Because I yeah. only eat duck when it comes yeah. to burger. Oh, I counted double down. Oh, all right. And, man, oh, fucking the uh, pork pork belly. I think I've mastered pork belly now. Gotta, see, I got to let it cook longer than 20 minutes, David. That's the problem. No. Okay. I, no pork belly I for eat- David. Thin strip steak, which can be fried in a pan. <laughs> in about five minutes. In the uh, in the proceeds of the garlic up vegetables that I had on them for the first fifteen minutes, yes. in less than three. Nice. Um, it's it's an exacting science. And then it takes four. It takes forty five minutes to eat. Nice. Over a thousand calories of vegetables. Gotcha. I mean, I mean, it does take I'm a eating, long time. I, I mean, I think I have a picture. I finally took a picture <laughs> of food. It was the first time I'd ever done it. It felt I've so been not. Are you growing a mustache shit now? Taking pictures not, of food, growing a mustache, not. listening to Guided by Voices. No. Was, oh God. <laughs> no, it's just like it's it's just an obscene amount of food. Very like good. this oh is this is that's this, a big plate, and this is a bowl. This yeah. is not a plate. <laughs> this is a bowl of food. No, it's um, it's Damn, just David. it's like a gallon of food. Like you just you you can't physically, and that's I mean, it's sort of the the pitch of using Furman's diet as a way to lose weight. If you eat the way that he says to eat, and you try to stay away from the stuff, the particularly indulgent stuff, like if you you don't eat too many nuts, it's physically impossible to gain weight. Gotcha. Eating lettuce. Gotcha. You just yeah, you can't, can't put that many calories in your stomach. Gotcha. Like I felt, I, I felt like horrible two days ago and I didn't I still I still managed to like get up I didn't have like the malaise of eating at you know like if you get the full five guys yeah. experience yeah. like like that weighs you, that weighs you down for oh, a little yeah. while this I just I felt terrible like I felt like parts of my stomach were gonna rupture yeah. for about half an hour yeah. yeah but that yeah. was all volume and as soon as that passed I was still good to go Masticate, David. You got to make sure you masticate. <laughs> oh, this, this is not a. This is a volume, not a chewing. No, problem. don't do. Oh, dude, kill. You're killing me. God almighty. <sighs> I took forty minutes. All right. <laughs> yeah, just five extra minutes of chewing. Continuous eating for forty. Uh, this this diet is great. Do you eat standing up? That's what I'm. I can't imagine. Come on, no. I can't imagine you like. <laughs> Sitting down forty minutes and doing something, I just don't see it. I don't, uh, it may be the most continuous, focused thing I've ever <laughs> Did I mention that this is like the best innovation in food I've come up no, with? No, no. I mean, I'm happy for you. It's just, I mean, it is really radical. That's what I'm trying to get across. Oh, it's, yeah, it it's great. Pretty... I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to split it up because I have a feeling I'm doing like intestinal damage. <laughs> if if I do this like chronically, well, no, it may it's, it's the problematic. valve damage. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, it's, no, it's, it's getting weak. I'm, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to break it up a little bit, uh, which, which thankfully shouldn't be too hard. But. All right, oh, shit. All right, let's do this. Let's fucking all talk right. about a French movie. Speaking oh, of God. indulgence. Woo! Oh, 